Genesis 1, of course, is probably one of the most heavily debated chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, it probably has that crown. There's probably other chapters or other books or other passages even that are more controversial. But I think it's almost without a doubt that the opening chapter of the Bible is the most contested. It's the most debated, it's the most discussed, even by people outside of the church. I think the reason of that, of course, is because Genesis 1 is pretty blunt and direct with what it says regarding how everything came into being. And of course, we know that from the very first four words in the beginning, God. Those are the, probably some of the, the best opening words to any book in all of literature are these first four words that we find right here in front of us. These basically sum up everything else. They contain within them much of the truth that we would see explained throughout the rest of the Bible. And indeed, I would say, these first four words are some of the most formative and foundational. If you don't accept and believe that this statement is true, you likely won't believe everything else that follows in the scriptures. And I think that's sort of the point. That's where the debate lies. That's where all of the questioning and, and going back and forth lies. Because mankind in his Sinful and wicked nature that's rotten to the core just cannot accept the idea that there is an authority that is also sovereign. Because then that would mean everything else is true too. I have to follow his word. I have to, not only that, but that would mean he would have to admit that he's guilty. That would mean he would have to admit that he's subservient to this higher deity. He would have to admit that he's deficient. He would have to admit that he's desperate. And furthermore, after all of those admissions, he would likewise have to admit that he cannot fix those things. He doesn't have the capacity to make those things better in and of himself. That's God's word in a nutshell, by the way. God's word in a nutshell is, man can't be his own savior. Man is not the captain of his soul, no matter what that poem says. He's not the captain of his own fate. Does that sound like something mankind is just jumping at the gun to admit? Not likely. Therefore, to escape all that, what happens? We remove ourselves out of the way, outside from underneath the authority, at least we try to pretend so. Man removes himself outside of the authority of Genesis 1 and instead concocts all kinds of theories and grand narratives and hypotheses for how everything came to be. Man writes his own origin story. For how everything came into being. And the, you know the one key ingredient through all of man's man-written stories of his own origin. The one key ingredient that is always missing is the presence and or involvement of God. Always. Nearly every theory that physicists that have lots of letters after their name and scientists who are way smarter than I will ever be, every theory that they have proposed to explain the origins of the universe, where does it all stem from? It stems from their insistence that they don't need God. They don't need to affirm in the beginning God because they don't want to. Every scientific explanation that 
academia, the world of academia and universities fawns over and applauds. What is it? It's merely an attempt to explain where you and I came from, our origins, our meaning, our purpose, and all of life itself without God. Take, for example, I did a a little bit of a deep dive on this. (laughs) Take, for example, the most widely accepted of all of these theories, the Big Bang Theory. Have you ever read about the Big Bang Theory, by the way? Not just what you think you know about it, but have you read all of the rhetoric behind it? This theory supposes that approximately 13.8 billion years ago, the universe consisted from this, uh, it started from a very small, very hot, very dense point of light. And then suddenly, no one knows why, by the way, there's no philosophical reasoning as to why, but that hot, dense point of light exploded and started expanding. And that's how the universe came to be. Creating everything in the universe. It came from an explosion of a point of light. And that's how we get all of nature today. That's how we get all uh, from that point. And then, yes, of course, billions and billions of years later, we have tissues in the human eyeball that allow us to see. We have synapses and fibers of muscle that allow us uh, to run and to jump. We have the ability to compute information in our brains faster than supercomputers. And all of that just happened. All of that just started from this explosion. It just so happened that through the course of that explosion, this planet that we call Earth was so perfectly positioned in the solar system. The earth sits roughly 93 million miles away from the sun. Any closer, roughly about 5% closer, or that's give or take math or whatever, we'd be fried. We'd be burned up. We would be all carbon, basically. (laughs) Any further away, we'd freeze. We wouldn't be able to survive, which is to say it just so happens That this planet that we live on, that we call home, is, yes, indeed, perfectly positioned in order to burst with life. Which, by the way, is the only planet we've ever found where that's the case. Where all of the conditions are possible for life to happen. And it all started, supposedly, from an explosion That resulted in a rock that is floating around a star that was so ideally placed that now plants can grow and birds migrate. And yes, human beings can write symphonies. The mathematical probability of that just happening is minimal to non-existent. That's what's so fascinating. The mathematical probability of all of that occurring just as it is, is about one one thousandth of a trillionth. Which is basically to say it is impossible. But again, man is rebellious. In his nature, he is averse to the ways of God, to the truth of God, to admitting the fact that he cannot be his own God. 
And therefore, so instead of conceding all of that fact, instead of admitting that even just basic math refutes the possibility of this explosion of a point of light, what would the scientists and physicists have you believe? They would have you, quote unquote, trust the science. Remember that phrase from a couple years ago? (laughs) That phrase is really ironic if you just stop and think about it. Trust the science. It's a statement that in and of itself is entirely illogical. Because science, true science, is never a matter of taking things on trust. No self-respecting scientist or physicist in any area of academia or any professional field would just say, just take my word for it. No, they, they would, that person would be laughed out of his university. Because by the definition, what? Science deals with data. It deals with observable facts. And indeed, that's the basic definition of science. It is something that is it's data that is observable, testable, and repeatable. And therefore, what happens? You can make scientific conclusions based on things being observed and tested and repeated. That's like science 101. I remember that when I was like in third grade. Maybe. I don't know. I remember it when I was really young. It's, uh, it's observable data that you can see and you can test and you can repeat. And then men or women make conclusions off of that data. And that's how we have the laws of physics and science and what we have. What's, what's observable, testable, repeatable about the Big Bang Theory? Nothing at all. And indeed, you could say and even say... That the Big Bang Theory is nothing more than a man-centered, man-created system of belief for how creation came to be. Indeed, if you really want to make someone mad that believes in this, you got to tell them that your theory is a statement of faith. Because that's what it is. No, no atheist would, or scientist, or physicist would like to say that. They would bristle at the notion. But indeed it is. They have a faith that they're believing in. It's not science. They can make scientific conclusions, but not based on our origins. And I think it's ironic. And I think it's tragic. That we who believe in the Bible's account of creation are regarded as what? Dim-witted and dumb. (laughs) While those in the halls of universities are awarded and applauded for their theories of primordial masses and ancient points of light. When our starting point is the exact same. The starting, they wouldn't, they would not dare to admit this. But the theory of the Big Bang and the Christian premise of creation are both, by and large, systems of faith. And we start from the same starting point. We start from a starting point of axiomatic truth. What does that mean, Pastor Brad? It means a truth that's self-evident, that barely needs explanation. In their minds, of course, that truth is what? The, the truth that is axiomatic for them, that is barely needs explanation, that's self-evident, is the fact that everything started with that singularity, that point of light. That's their axiom. That's their belief. Everything started from there, and then that's how we get here. Thirteen-odd billion years later, give or take a billion. They begin all of their theorizing, all of their hypothesizing with faith. Yes. 
Only theirs is faith in the quote-unquote mechanics of the world. Which always falls short from bringing us into what is most true about us. You know what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes? That we, man was made with the world in his heart. It's a, it's a statement that reminds us. That we were put here by someone else and we were made for someone else. And yes, indeed, until we find something infinite, that infinite chasm within our hearts will always be left unfilled. Starting with the mechanics of the world will never fill you. Yes, so we can say that those who don't believe in God are still starting from all of their theories from the same starting point. It's a starting point of faith. Only theirs is in, again, this mechanics and math that doesn't even make sense. In a similar way, we have to say the same thing about the Bible. The Bible begins from a standpoint of axiomatic truth, self-evident truth, truth that barely needs explaining. What is that axiom? In the beginning, God. That's our axiom from which everything else flows. That statement is not necessarily scientific. But then again, much of this first chapter is not scientific per se. And it's not written to be. And I think you should be okay with admitting that. That might strike you odd. How is this? It's not really. By the same standard. There is nothing observable, so to speak, or testable or repeatable about the Bible's account of creation where it says that God said something and something else came to be. Out of nothing, there was nothing, and he created something else. We were not there when God established the heavens. So therefore, it's not observable and we can't test it and repeat it. We were not around, as it says in Proverbs chapter 8, when God drew a circle. As it's, Go with me to Proverbs 8, just so you can see this, so you don't just think I'm reading it. Proverbs chapter 8. Look at how Solomon, using this sort of imagery of wisdom speaking, talks about how the creation of everything came to be. Listen to this language. Look at Proverbs 8, verse 27. Or, uh, let's jump back to verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. I, meaning wisdom personified. I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with his fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the, wisdom, the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight. Rejoicing before him always. That's... Wisdom's account of creation. Wisdom here being a personification, so to speak, of the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself. And we take, we take that account to be true on what basis? Science? If that's your basis for belief, my friends, that is a very faulty basis. We take this account on faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. Go with me. We're going to jump around. Then we're going to get back to Genesis, I promise. 
Hebrews 11. Do you remember this verse when we went through Hebrews? He makes this amazing statement at the beginning of his little discourse on faith in chapter 11 that we often refer to as the hall of faith. But notice what he says in the beginning of this chapter. Hebrews 11 verse 3. By faith... Notice, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He is thereby declaring for each and every one of us here. Yes, even you in these seats, hundreds, centuries of years later. That we have the same starting point. We start from a basis of faith. And we believe with our hearts in the beginning God. In fact, in nearly every time the biblical writers allude to this creation of the world. They do so on the basis of faith. Go with them. Watch this. Go to, to Acts chapter 14. Paul is... Is on his first missionary journey and he's run into some troubles by the time this statement comes forth. He's at Lystra dealing with some difficulties and resistance. Notice what he says, just as almost in way by way of passing. Verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, Acts 14, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. Of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Notice who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Go with me to Colossians chapter number one, Paul's very famous Christological treatise, where he begins by identifying and explaining who this Jesus is. Who is he? He's the wisdom that was there from the beginning. Notice verse 15. Colossians 1.15, notice what it says. Paul again speaking. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You see what he, how Paul is formulating his arguments and articulating his belief? He's starting from a standpoint of axiomatic truth. Belief that in the beginning God, and he made all of these things through the wisdom of himself, which is Christ. Does Paul have scientific proof that this is true? Not really The power of God to create things, ex nihilo, as the Latin is, or out of nothing is never proven. It's just assumed. God never once, in all of these pages of scripture, gives us his formula for how he came up with the size of the earth. Nor are we ever given an algorithm for how God determined how far away to put the earth from the sun so that life could exist. See, that's what's so stark about Genesis 1 is that it confronts us with a stark reality that everything that we see in nature and in creation was created. It came forth from the bare word of God. In the beginning, God spoke 
And everything came to be. Everything came into existence. As we just read in Hebrews, the universe was created by the word of God. Romans chapter 4 verse 17, Paul again says that by the word of his power, he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Or to read perhaps the most famous of all of these, at least in the New Testament, as the New Testament is concerned, John chapter 1. You know these verses. John 1, the very beginning of the Apostle John's gospel. What does he say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Not anything was not anything made that was made. He is intentionally echoing the very beginning of the Bible as he begins this gospel to draw into our minds what fact. Well, for the purposes of his gospel, the very fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God himself in the flesh. And he's drawing it by saying, in the beginning was God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The self-evident truth of creation is just the fact that everything came into being because God said so. And that's a stark reality to face. But again, go back to Genesis 1. I promise we'd get back there. Notice how many times we find those words within this text. Verse number 3, And God said... Verse number 6, and God said. Verse number 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. And so it goes on and on all the way throughout the chapter. 11 different times we find that phrase or some variation of it saying, and God said. Out of the, everything was created by the word of his power. That's exactly what this first chapter is revealing and demonstrating for us. As that worship song says, that out of the vapor of his breath, the planets were formed. That's sort of the picture that's being painted for us by this beautiful chapter. You see, Genesis 1 is not meant to be understood only as some sort of scientific account of creation or merely as a proposal for the origins of the universe. Rather, like the rest of the Bible, I think Genesis 1 should be understood to be a very important, very significant, but nevertheless another uh, portion of God's unfolding revelation of who he is. It's a, it's a revelation of his heart. He's showing us the type of God he is by giving us this account of creation. You know, you've heard me talk about it before. And again, I think it clearly applies here. That the Bible is not fundamentally a book about history or a book about science or a book about politics or a book about economics or even a book about morality. It contains those things. There's history in here, 100%. There's science in here. There's politics in here. There's economics in here. And of course, there's morals. But really, those things are there. Because they play a role in how God has chosen to reveal who he is. The primary purpose of the scriptures that you hold in front of you is one thing only. To reveal the glory of God as seen nowhere else than in the person and work of the Son of God. 
That's always the Bible's purpose. And I would even say, I'm going to die on the hill that says the Bible's point is Jesus. That's always the point. And I'm not going to re-preach that. I want to, but I'm not. If that's true, and I think it is, that the Bible is always guiding us and ushering us to see how God has chosen to reveal himself to the likes of you and me. What do we see then out of this first chapter about who our God is? When Moses was writing these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what was the objective? What did he want To show what does creation reveal about our Lord. Well I'm going to tell you. I think it reveals. I think it gives us a glimpse of what truly matters to him. If you want to know what God cares about. Look no further than this chapter. And indeed again look at what we read earlier. Look at verse 14. And God said. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give lights upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. If you remember from your days in junior church, perhaps, you remember learning about the days of creation. And here on day number four, God is speaking into existence, notably the sun and the moon, and putting them in their courses. He speaks, he utters a word, and those two great lights, as he calls them, are put in perfect position right where they are to this day. And I think what's so fascinating about this fourth day is that included in this act of creation is, oh yeah, all the stars too. Verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Or as it is in the King James, he made the stars also. It almost reads as if it's an afterthought, doesn't it? Almost as if God was telling Moses, oh yeah, and I made some stars too on that day. Now just pause for a moment. Consider the weight of this, as I've liked to term it, this glorious footnote in the creation of the universe. In our galaxy alone, they have estimated, the Milky Way has an estimated between, and get this range, between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. Talk about room for error. So let's go with 400 billion. Really, that, a lot of stars, we can't even compute that. And if we are give uh, the astronomers any sort of credit, they have put the estimate of other galaxies in the known universe to something like two trillion. That's a two with 12 zeros. It's hard to fathom. It should be hard to fathom how big this universe is. And yet, even though this universe is infinitely unknowable, 
To the likes of you and me, it took no effort for God to make it appear. It appeared with a word. It appeared as he spoke and everything came into being. He created everything without breaking a sweat. But more to the point, despite how small we are and feel and we should And despite how insignificant this planet is, and it is, in the grand scheme of the cosmic plane, God includes this note and the stars, I think, to showcase where his focus is. Who has his attention? It's not the vast array of stars in the canopy of space. It's not all of the distant planets that are rotating out in galaxies that are yet undiscovered. He has his cares and his attentions focused where? On you and on me. What God cares about most is us sitting in these pews right here this morning. That's what he cares about. And how do I know that? Because all the stars and the immeasurable space above us barely get a mention in the record of God's creation. And you know what he uses them for? He uses the stars as object lessons. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to see this. And then we'll close very shortly. I don't think it's by accident that God draws The attention of Abraham to look up and gaze at what? The stars. In order to get in his mind's eye just how grand his promise is for him. Genesis 15, look at verse 5. And he brought him outside. God brings Abraham outside under the stars. And he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Go with me to chapter 22. Look at verse 17. A couple of years later, God repeats this same promise. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Chapter 26, verse 4. Lastly, again, God is saying to him, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All of those billions and billions and unknowable billions of stars. You know what they testify to? They testify that even they do not even hold a candle to how much God loves you. How much God's faithfulness is for you. He's telling that to Abraham. And he's telling that to you and me too. And how do I know that? Because no other planet has ever felt the blood of God drip on its surface. Only the earth. 
Only the earth has seen the Son of God bleed and die and rise again. And you see, that's the amazing part about all this. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they are brought into a perfect creation. Everything was given to them except one thing. And that was the thing that they craved. That was the thing that they wanted. That was the thing that they lusted after. And when they ate and they plunged humanity into sin and into darkness and into uh, horrible atrocities, what does God do? How does he show his care and his love and his faithfulness to that creation? He gives them the promise that all of that would be remade. Genesis 3.15, remember what he says? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In very theological terms, this is called the proto-evangelium, which just means this is the first declaration of the gospel. Because here God has given the first whispers of how he would redeem the world. How? By bringing, uh, by, uh, by sending his son to be born of a woman. And yes, his heel would be bruised as it was on the cross. But ultimately, eventually, that son would crush the head of the serpent. And it all happens here. On this earth. It all happens because God and his care for us is, yes, even more infinitely unfathomable than all of the stars in the universe. You see how wonderful this is within the midst of this account of creation when we're learning about days, of uh, the days in which God spoke things into existence. Embedded into all of that is a foretaste of the story of redemption. Because the same God... Who, as it says in Isaiah 40, can measure all of the waters in the hollow of his hand and can mark off the heavens with a span of his hand and can weigh the mountains and scales. That is the same God who cares more about this planet and the people that populated than anything else that he has ever created. And that's the beautiful point. The scientists, they get one thing right. This planet is not much more, as one is notable for saying, not much more than a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam. That was Carl Sagan who said that, the very famous astronomer. And he said later on in one of his documentaries that the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. And indeed, that's true. The conclusion that they arrive to, though, because of that quote-unquote science Asserts that man's hope and his meaning and his purpose, they're found elsewhere in the stars. And that's not what God says. God's word shows us that it is precisely on this very small stage that we find our life, that we find our hope. How? Because God Himself visited this very small stage. And surrender to death for the likes of you and me. 
God's word is a testimony that is precisely this very small stage, this earth that is nothing more than a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam, has been visited by the very creator himself in order to display the immensity of his love for the likes of you and me. That is the amazing truth that we are called to live in and rejoice in and live in light of. Because for as infinitely vast as this universe is, It is nothing compared to the love of God that takes on flesh and walks on this speck of dust among thieves and sinners. You see, the point is, we read about creation. And sometimes our minds just go towards science. You know what we should be thinking of? We should be thinking about that time when Jesus was pegged to a tree. Because yes, indeed the crucifixion is made all the more scandalous when you realize who is being pegged there. The very one through whom every tree was spoken into existence is the same one who is bleeding out for your sins. And the very one who formed the body of man from the dust of this earth is willing to take on a body just like that so that he might taste death himself. That's what's happening When Jesus dies and bows his head as he surrenders to death. And why? Why would he do that? Because God cares more about people than he does planets and he redeems souls. He doesn't redeem stars. He dies for sinners, not for solar systems. You can be enamored by the stars and we should. But the stars you see are nothing but the window dressing on the wonderful work of God's eternal redemption. When you look at them, don't try and find a sign in them. Be pointed to the one who made them. To the one who spoke and all of them came into being. And he's saying to you and to me that even all of that cannot even compute to how much I love you. My friends... Sisters, brothers, where you sit right here this morning, you are eternally loved by an eternally faithful God. Right where you sit. If you need proof, look at the stars. Look at what he has spoken into existence. You are loved beyond what you can imagine. And he is calling you. Yes, he is calling you to draw near to him by faith. To take his word by faith. And to say, yes, this is who I am. And he's calling sinners. And he's calling saints to find all of their hope and joy and meaning and purpose and life in him. That's what God did. We find our meaning in the one who died on this planet. It should make our minds be blown. We should be stunned into silence at how amazing and awesome this news is. It is beyond compare. It's beyond anything we could ever fathom or make up or imagine. Sinner... If you don't know this God, I'm telling you this morning that the invitation stands open. That this God, this very God who spoke everything into being, he is calling you to himself. 
He resists none. He pushes away none that come to him with a repentant and, yes, contrite heart who understand who they are. They are sinners in desperate need of saving. There's a problem that cannot be fixed. And the God who spoke everything into existence is calling you to, yes, come and find all that you need in him. Christian, by the same token, I give to you the same good news. If you're looking for something to fill you, looking for something to satisfy you, you're looking for something to make everything just fit, everything just be together. God is inviting you to find that to be Him. He made the stars also. Why? So that we could look up and gaze. Be greeted by a God of unfathomable and infinite love and grace and calling. Whatever circumstance life has you in this morning, the God who made the stars is inviting you to find your peace and your rest in who he is. The God who made the stars of heaven. The God who died so that you might have life everlasting. Let us pray.